0: With thanks to the Florence School of Regulation for the invitation, in the following I will give you an overview of some of the key aspects in the setup of the Danish-German Cooperation Agreement on the first cross-border solar PV tenders. My name is Diana Metruk. And I work within the capacity as a lawyer within the Danish Energy Agency that is a part of the Danish Ministry of Energy, Utilities and Climate. I was a part of a Danish team working on the setup of the cross-border pilot run with our German colleagues. So what is it that makes this cooperation between Denmark and Germany interesting and surprising? Well firstly, the Palerun realizes two cross border tenders on financial support to electricity from solar photovoltaic installations, and thus for cross border participation of installations in national tenders for the very first time. Secondly, the Palerun resulted in astonishing low prices for electricity from solar PV installations in this part of the world. And thirdly, installations planned to be established in Denmark. One, the total capacity of the pilot run. Let's start by looking at the background for the Danish decision to conduct the cross-border tender. In 2014, when the European Commission was considering the Danish applications on state aid for solar PV and wind electricity, the Commission put the legality of the Danish PSO charge into question. The Commission's concern was that while a PSO charge is to be paid based on all electricity consumed in Denmark, it is only domestically produced electricity that has access to the support to renewables that is financed by the PSO charge. In other words, the Commission raised the concern that the PSO charge may also cover electricity imported into Denmark from other countries of the European Economic Area and therefore that this financing mechanism could entail discrimination against imports within the meaning of Articles 30 and 110 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. The Commission then informed the Danish government that the preliminary evaluation was that the PSO charge may be potentially contrary to the EU prohibition against discriminatory charges. With the aim to remedy this potential discrimination, Denmark reached a temporary solution with the Commission for the years 2015 and 2016 that allowed the Commission to approve the notified aid in October 2014 for solar PV and wind electricity. This temporary solution was that Denmark would conduct a pilot tender of 20 megawatt solar PV of which 2.4 megawatt would be open to installations located in one or more countries of the European Economic Area. The temporary solution provided Denmark with time to consider what the long-term solution after 2017 should be. We have subsequently reached a long-term solution in Denmark on the PSO charge, which I will get back to at the end of the podcast. The next step for Denmark was then to find a partner country. Luckily, we weren't the only country on the lookout for a partner, since our neighboring country Germany experienced similar challenges concerning the German National Support Scheme for renewables. For reasons similar to the Danish case, the Commission was concerned that the financing of the German Renewable Support Scheme via a surcharge to be paid on all electricity consumed in Germany was potentially contrary to the EU prohibition against discriminatory charges. In the summer of 2014, Germany agreed to open up to 5% of its newly installed capacity per year to installations located in other member states from 2017 onwards in order to secure state approval for the Renewable Energy Sources Act 2014. Germany, moreover, committed itself to conduct a cross-border pilot tender for Solar PFE before 2017. In other words, the cooperation between Denmark and Germany was born from the circumstance that both countries agreed to open their tenders in order to secure stated approval for their respective renewable support system from the Commission. The starting point of the cooperation was that Denmark and Germany would conduct two separate national tenders with individual tender designs. There would be one national German tender of 50 MW, carried out and designed by Germany and open to installations located in Denmark, and one national Danish tender carried out and designed by Denmark with a capacity of 20 MW, of which 2.4 MW would be open to installations located in Germany. So the two national tenders would be separate, but mutually open. Of course, we discussed the two tender designs in the course of the negotiations, but in the end the first basic principle of the cooperation was established, which was that each country decided how to design its own tender, except for elements of the tender design that would affect the territory of the other country which is an important aspect that I will get back to in a bit. Just to mention a few differences in the two tender designs, the Danish tender operated with a fixed premium, while the German tender had a floating one. In times of negative prices, there would be no financial support paid in the Danish tender, while in the German tender, payments would only be stopped if there were more than 6 hours of negative prices and in the German tender a maximum price was included, while there was no maximum price in the Danish tender. It is important to note that the pilot run did not consist of one joint tender. A joint tender would have presented a wide range of new challenges, since an agreement would have to be reached between Denmark and Germany on all aspects of tender design. When looking at what conditions Denmark would require the partner country to meet, it was important to keep in mind that we were operating and setting up the Danish pilot tender within the frame of the stated rules, consisting of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, the Guidelines from the European Commission on State Aid for Environmental Protection and Energy 2014-2020, to and Directive 2009-28 EC, the promotion of the use of energy from renewable sources, but also within the frame of the stated approvals that Denmark had received from the Commission in October 2014 that I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. Moreover, Denmark also had to notify the setup of the Danish pilot tender to the Commission in order to obtain a stated approval on the tender before starting it. The approval from the Commission was also a precondition for the coming into force of the Danish national legislation on the pilot run, which brings me to the national legal basis for the cross-border project. In Denmark, we spent a considerable amount of time on drafting a new legal act on the pilot run that was passed by the Danish parliament and which constituted the national legal basis. This was the so-called project act Meaning that it would apply only to this one single cross border pilot run. In case further cross border projects are decided in the future, we would need to draft new legislation and consult the Danish Parliament. When looking at cross border tendering procedures, it is important to allocate sufficient time for the work on preparing the national legal basis. The time frame, of course, depends on the legal system of the relevant country. But in Denmark, this was a time consuming part of the setup of the pilot run. In the National Project Act, we included three conditions that would have to be met by a partner country it has to be a country in the European Economic Area, it has to be directly electrically connected to Denmark, and a cooperation agreement has to be concluded. The reasoning behind the requirement of direct interconnection was that the potential discrimination connected to the PSO charge that I spoke about in the beginning of the podcast is only relevant with respect to those suppliers that deliver electricity for consumption in Denmark and thus only with respect to the EEA countries that the Danish electricity grid is directly connected to. This was also a realization of the physical import requirement that the Commission permitted Denmark to introduce in the stated approvals from October 2014, since without imports, no discrimination in the sense of Articles 30 and 110 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union would occur in the first place. When working on the actual implementation of the requirement of physical import, it goes without saying that we had to choose a pragmatic approach. Due to the complex reality of electricity flows, it is impossible to ensure that the actual produced electricity from a specific Danish-funded installation in a partner country is delivered to Denmark. It is undesirable to introduce excessive administrative proof, if that is at all possible, and obviously inopportune to introduce mechanisms for the reservation of interconnector capacities. The introduction of such mechanisms can alter physical flows between countries and lead to inefficient market results. So in Denmark we concluded that it was impossible to document physical import from these specific installations abroad any closer than the criterion of direct interconnection, which was the definition that we then included in the Danish national legislation. When working on the cross-border pilot run, We paid much attention to mechanisms that we could introduce in order to secure public acceptance. Why should a Danish electricity consumer or taxpayer fund electricity produced on an installation located abroad? The requirement of physical import, which ensures that there is some kind of real effect on the Danish electricity market of the Danish funded electricity abroad, was a part of these considerations. On the other side of the border, Germany had adopted a new cross-border renewable energy regulation, which was based on the legal framework and authorization as provided for in the German Renewable Energy Sources Act 2014. Germany had three requirements before the cross-border opening, which were reciprocity, physical import of electricity, and the conclusion of a cooperation agreement. What the reciprocity requirement meant was that Germany could only open its national pilot tender to Denmark if Denmark in turn opened its pilot tender to Germany. The requirement didn't, however, mean that the capacities of the openings had to be the same in absolute numbers. In the pilot run, Germany opened 50 MW to installations in Denmark, while Denmark opened 2.4 MW to installations in Germany. Denmark, on the other hand, didn't have reciprocity as a requirement, so there was no condition that our partner country would have to open its national scheme to Danish installations in return for the Danish opening. However, it hardly comes as a surprise that the principle of reciprocity in the Danish-German cooperation was a preferable option for both countries. Reciprocity, with its give-and-take approach, is one of the tools that we had in place to serve public acceptance purposes in this cross-border project. The mutually open capacities in the two tenders were not reserved for installations located in the partner country. The aim of the pilot run was to enable the cheapest bid to win, irrespective of whether the winning installation was to be established in Germany or in Denmark. In this way, PV installations in Denmark and Germany could participate and compete in the two national tenders alongside one another. However, lately questions have been raised on whether Danish installations may have had an advantage compared to German installations in the tendering procedures, which is something I will get back to later on in the podcast. Moving on to the second German requirement of physical import of the German-funded electricity produced on installations located in Denmark, this condition was considered met, giving the high direct interconnection level between Denmark and Germany and the small volume of the pilot tenders. What is critical to keep in mind and acknowledge when working on cross-border tenders is that the opening of a country's national support scheme may intervene with the way the partner country politically wishes to deploy renewables on its territory. As an acknowledgement of this, Denmark and Germany established that in principle, the location-specific conditions of the country where the installation is located shall apply, unless this is not possible due to existing national legislation of the funding country or is contrary to the funding country's political context, and this is accepted by the country where the installation is to be located. Examples of such location-specific conditions are relevant applicable national legislation and other regulations, such as rules on spatial planning and construction, licensing laws, grid connection, and taxation. These location-specific conditions were not aligned in the pilot run. Now, looking at an example for the exception to the principle, in Germany national legislation only allowed for support to ground-mounted PV installations. In Denmark, however, there is no similar national legislation or political context that only ground-mounted PV should be supported. But Denmark accepted the German request that also installations in Denmark had to be ground-mounted in order to participate in the German open pilot tender. In general, when drafting the national legal basis for cross-border openings, it is advantageous to include as few as possible conditions for the opening that affects the territory of the partner country. Obviously, the legal basis for the cross-border cooperation is the cooperation agreement that is an international treaty between the countries and not any national legislation. What this means is that if a country has already passed national legislation, that includes elements that cannot be deviated from when negotiating and National Cooperation Agreement, but which have an impact on the way that the partner country wishes to deploy renewables on its territory, then that can make the conclusion of the cooperation agreement difficult, since the partner country in every such case has to accept these elements and they have to be incorporated into the agreement. The National uh, Danish Project Act is a reflection of this mindset and provided Denmark with much flexibility during the negotiation. On the other hand, the German national legislation had elements in place, as for instance the German-funded installations have to be ground mounted, irrespective of their location, which made the discussion that I have just spoken about relevant and so if Denmark could accept that this would apply to German-funded installations on Danish territory. Moving on to one of the most discussed parts of the 1, which is the restriction on eligible sites in Germany. It follows from German legislation that only specific sites are available for German-funded installations, and that, for instance, a PV installation on German agricultural land cannot receive financial support from the German National Support Scheme. The background for this is that Germany wishes to limit changes in the landscape, in particular in rural areas, and to ensure the availability of agricultural land. However, the establishment of solar PV installations on agricultural land in Germany is not in general prohibited by German legislation. The restriction is only linked to the German support system for renewables and the legislation on this. What this means is that if it is in accordance with the local planning rules of the relevant German area, then a PV installation can be established on agricultural land, but what it cannot not do is to receive any financial support from the German National Support Scheme. However, PV installations on German agricultural land could potentially receive financial support floating in from abroad, in this case from Denmark. However, in order to accommodate the German request, since keeping up with such restrictions is crucial for Germany, Denmark implemented the same side restrictions in the Danish pilot tender for German installations. This meant that installations in Germany participating in the Danish pilot tender would have to follow the German side restrictions, as they are stated in German legislation on German support for electricity from renewables. So in this case, Denmark chose to respect the way in which Germany wishes to deploy renewables on its territory. Again, it is important to keep in mind that when working on cross-border tenders, a country could be interfering in the way renewables are deployed in the partner country. On the other hand, in Denmark, we have no such site restrictions linked to Danish legislation on the Danish support system to renewables. On the contrary, actually, in the Danish pilot tender we aim to include as few restrictions as possible. So what this means, is that unless local planning rules place such restrictions on the establishment of solar PV installations, then they do not follow from any national legislation. At the same time, it is also interesting to note that Denmark did not wish to include the German side restrictions, in general, in Danish nationwide legislation, since that would not have been in accordance with the Danish political context at the time. Moreover, If both the site restrictions and the condition that installations have to be ground mounted were applied to Danish territory, this could more than likely entail that there would in fact hardly be any available sites in Denmark compared to available sites in Germany. The outcome of the negotiations led to the site restrictions applying only to German territory in both the Danish and German pilot tenders. Some stakeholders have raised the concern that this was a critical disadvantage for German installations compared to Danish ones. I will get back to this concern later on in the podcast. The next topic I will talk about is the setup of the data transfer system, which is tremendously important in cross-border support to renewables. Now what this means is that if an installation is located in Germany and is receiving support from Denmark, then in order to calculate the amount of support that this installation is to receive, Denmark has to receive information from Germany on the amount of electricity produced and the market price in the relevant zone of the electricity market and vice versa for installations located in Denmark but funded by Germany. This was the most time-consuming part of the negotiations since the discussions involved many different actors, such as for instance the relevant German TSOs and the Danish TSO. These are very technical discussions, and sufficient time has to be allocated in order to identify the necessary and relevant data and how to transfer it. The next challenge we had to consider was the question of control. How should we construct the supervision and control system so that we can trust that the data coming in from another country is correct? In the Danish-German cooperation, we adopted a very simple approach. That is based on trust and mutual recognition. What this means is that if the control system of the partner country is adequate for the installations that are nationally supported there, then it is also adequate for the installations that are supported from abroad. This approach is based on Germany and Denmark having confidence in the control systems of the other country, but also on the nature of the pilot tender we needed to find pragmatic solutions that could work, and we're also in the fortunate place that we can actually test solutions. The data transfer also includes confirmations. For instance, that the installation in Denmark is actually ground-mounted and not placed on a roof. These confirmations constitute information that the partner country has to receive in order to make payments to the installation located abroad since it has no access to gather the information itself. The Cooperation Agreement also forms the base for statistical transfers as provided for in Article 6 of the Renewable Energy Directive. The Renewable Energy Directive sets binding national targets on the share of renewable energy sources in energy consumption and transport to be met by the year of 2020 and provides the basis for enhanced cooperation on the expansion of renewable energy between member states by introducing cooperation mechanisms. This is the first time the two member states have opted to use the cooperation mechanism of statistical transfers, where an amount of renewable energy is deducted from one country's progress towards its national target and added to another's. This is an accounting procedure and no actual energy changes hands. So let's say that an installation in Germany is funded by Denmark as a result of the pilot run. In that case, the energy production from the German installation would be statistically transferred from Germany to Denmark. In this process, Germany would deduct the concerned amount from its progress, and Denmark would add the same amount to its national progress. What this means is that energy produced on the German installation is virtually transferred to the renewable energy statistics of Denmark and counts towards the Danish national renewable target. Next to the reciprocity principle that we adopted and which I spoke about earlier on the podcast, we also incorporated statistical transfers for among other purposes in order to obtain public acceptance of this cross-border project. When applying statistical transfers in this way in cross-border projects, the country that pays support to an installation located abroad receives the produced energy from the in- that installation as statistical transfers for its national progress purposes in order to meet the EU renewable target and perhaps also a national renewable target. In this way, a member state can perhaps achieve its EU renewable target and perhaps also a national renewable target more cost-effectively. The set of this principle in the Danish-German cooperation, that energy should count towards the country funding the installation, is anchored in the actual circumstances of Denmark and Germany. However, other arrangements can be made that could prove more favourable if the circumstances were different on the question of what country should be giving the produced energy for target achievement purposes. For instance, a payment obligation could be introduced due to the funding country if it is agreed that the non-funding country keeps the produced energy for its own target achievement purposes. As with most arrangements, the most favorable setup will depend on the concrete circumstances of the participating countries. Even though nobody likes to talk about divorce when getting married, When working on treaties, one of the most important areas to consider is risk and liability. There are no definite exit provisions for Denmark and Germany in the cooperation agreement, since the main concern that we had was investor security. Without the cooperation agreement, the system of data transfer between Denmark and Germany would cease, and as a direct consequence of this, it would not be possible to make payments to installations located on the other side of the border. By not including definite exit provisions in the agreement, we aim to send a signal to investors that the cooperation agreement between Denmark and Germany is here to stay, and that investments could be made without the risk that one of the countries, at some point in time, might withdraw from the agreement. The outcome of our approach is that withdrawal or termination by Denmark or Germany is only possible when it is in accordance with the Vienna Convention from 1969 and therefore very difficult. A basic principle in the Danish-German cooperation is trust. What this means is that many of the solutions on difficult problems in the setup of the cooperation were only possible due to the circumstance that Denmark and Germany based our cooperation on trust that we had to find pragmatic and efficient solutions that could work, and with regard to the fact that this is a test case. So Denmark and Germany are building the airplane as we're flying it, so to say. As a consequence of our trust approach, we included the commitment in the cooperation agreement that if problems occur, then Denmark and Germany would consult one another and in good faith find a workable solution. Let me give you an example of this approach. Say Germany stops payments to an installation located in Denmark. Then Germany would be obliged to send an explanation to Denmark explaining why it has stopped the funding the installation, and the two countries will then discuss whether and to what extent any further production of electricity from that installation shall be statistically transferred to Germany or not. And now getting to the exciting results of the pilot run, let's take a look at the Danish pilot tender first. The Danish pilot tender was a true prize discovery for Denmark, since this was the first time Denmark conducted a tender for financial support to electricity from solar PV. We received 36 bits, however, all for Danish installations. So there were actually no bits for German installations. The results were astonishing as the Danish pilot tender produced a historical low price in Denmark of only 12.89 Danish øre per Kilowatt, which is 1.81 Euro cents per Kilowatt as a premium on top of the market price. Initially, we expected to commit 8 million Danish kroners for the subsidy, but after achieving the astonishing low price, we now estimate the commitment at closer to 2.8 million kroners. This is quite remarkable. Looking at the German pilot tender, 43 bits were received with a total volume of 297 MW. Of that total, 17 bits were from Denmark and amounted to 154 MW, with 26 German bits totaling 143 MW. What this meant was actually that the 50 MW was exceeded fivefold. What came as quite a surprise was that a Danish developer cleared the German pilot tender with five winning bids. These winning bids fell to a by European standards very low 5.38 euro cents per kilowatt, which is two cents below the previous national tender held in Germany for solar PV, which attracted winning bids with an average of 7.25 euro cents per kilowatt bids in the German tenders are much higher than bids in the Danish pilot tender because the German bids include the market price, while the Danish bids do not. Great many comments have been made on the outcome of the pilot run, especially trying to explain why Danish installations want the German pilot tender. Lately, much attention has been given to the circumstance that installations in Denmark could be established on agricultural land while installations in Germany could not. But even though all five winning bits in the German pilot tender have installations planned to be located on Danish agricultural land, on the other hand in the Danish pilot tender, the winning installations are actually not planned to be established on agricultural Danish land, but on industrial land, so this may in fact not have been a decisive circumstance when trying to explain the outcome of the German pilot tender. Some again have noticed that perhaps some of the developers for German installations may have been reluctant to participate in the cross-border pilot run, since German installations could also participate in a subsequent national German tender to be held a little bit later the same year, and that developers for Danish installations may have been more eager to participate since there were no subsequent solar PV tenders planned in Denmark. Moreover. Some have indicated that the small volume of the opening of the Danish Tender of only 2.4 MW and for developers of solar PV projects in Germany, unusual fixed premium in the Danish Tender also contributed to the fact that we in the Danish Tender didn't receive any bids for German installations. Some other observations have been that a photovoltaic installation functions more effectively in cold surroundings, so better in Denmark than in Germany, that Denmark has fewer clouds than Germany, and that all good sites are maybe already taken in Germany compared to available sites in Denmark. However, I must disappoint you in this podcast with the message that there are no simple and exact answers due to the complexity of investor decisions and factors influencing them. We simply don't know for sure why the initial installation's want the full capacity of the pilot run. This is an area that should be examined closer. Getting to the ending of this podcast, what is it then that we can conclude from the Danish-German cross-border pilot run? From the Danish perspective, the corporation ensured that any risk as to whether the funding of renewables in Denmark was in compliance with EU law in the years 2015 and 2016 was eliminated. Since then, the Danish parliament has passed a long-term solution concerning the legality of the PSO charge, which was accepted by the Commission. In 2016, Denmark abolished the PSO charge and it will be phased out gradually between 2017 to 2022. From 2022, finance for renewable energy projects will be included in the national budget. Since the PSO charge from 2022 will no longer be added to the electricity bill, the risk of the potential discrimination is eliminated and no further cross-border projects are currently in the pipeline. However, presently, the Renewable Energy Directive is under revision for the time being after 2020 and one of the aspects is whether mandatory cross-border openings of support schemes will be included or if it should remain voluntary, as it is today, under the current Renewable Energy Directive. Thinking about any future cross-border cooperations. this podcast does not present any recommendations or reflections on whether openings should be mandatory or voluntary. But regardless of the outcome of the negotiations on the Renewable Energy Directive on this aspect, What many are wondering is whether the Danish-German Cooperation is a blueprint for future cross-border projects, be they mandatory or voluntary ones. Well, what is for certain is that the Danish-German Cooperation provides an important test case, and that we as first-mover countries in this field are currently in the process of gathering practical hands-on experience and getting wiser by the day, so to say. This pilot run will expand itself over the next two decades, so much experience is still to be gained. Firstly, what the Danish-German pilot run demonstrates is that sufficient time and resources have to be allocated for the setup of these kind of cross-border projects, as they are complex, detailed and cover many steps to be taken into account. This is also the reason why these kind of projects cannot be handled by a set of common rules, since it is crucial that the specifics of the participating countries are taken into account. When drafting provisions in the Future Renewable Energy Directive on the opening, caution is urged around including detailed provisions in the directive that might best be dealt with under a treaty between countries. At the same time, caution is also urged around including detailed provisions when drafting national legislation that could affect the deployment of renewables in the partner country, since the partner country would have to agree on all such elements so that they can be incorporated into the cooperation agreement. In general, countries should have as much flexibility as possible when negotiating a cooperation agreement since many different national concerns have to be taken into account, especially so that there is no unintended or undesirable interference by the funding country with the way that the partner country wishes to deploy renewables on its own territory. Secondly, what the pilot run also clearly shows is that there seems to be cost-cutting potential if cross-border tenders are introduced. And thirdly, what the Danish German project also shows is that it is possible to set up cross-border tenders of support to renewables which in itself is a remarkable step forward. There are difficulties with opening support schemes because of the different legal, political and economic circumstances in the different countries, but it is possible and may also lead to surprising positive outcomes.